Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to another episode of Your Case is on Hold, number 48. We're going to start it off by saying that these opinions are our own. They do not reflect anyone on the JBJS um, editorial board or anyone else in JBJS. I am Antonio Chen. I am deputy editor of Adobe Reconstruction, and I have here... I'm uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor of Methods. And we're going to start top of the pile in Appreciation 2023 by Nelson. This is permanently free. There's also training traditional bone setters in basic principles of fracture treatment, a proof of concept in Ghana by Kanadu Yobo. This is also permanently free. What's important? Care of the migrant trauma patient by Young. This is permanently free. And what's new in musculoskeletal tumor surgery by Gazanam. This is also permanently free. Finally, reverse dynamization accelerates regenerate bone formation and remodeling in a goat distraction osteogenesis model by Baffor. And now we're going to start with our headlines. Please tell us about nutritional laboratory studies prior to total knee arthroplasty, practice versus publications by Rakut et al. And there's also an infographic on this. All right. So this study sets the uh, table. Uh, Their premise is that many studies have identified the importance of nutritional status prior to total knee arthroplasty. And they say that the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has publications recommending specific laboratory studies, and they're not sure that surgeons obtain these laboratory studies or the frequency with which they obtain these studies. So they wanted to leverage the Pearl Diver database to assess the incidence of ordering nutritional laboratory studies in the 90 days prior to total knee. Pearl Diver, of course, is clearinghouse of data that collects a lot of claims-based data. They're looking over the decade 2011 to 2020, identified 557,670 patients, so an incredibly large number. They're looking for orders of metabolic panel, blood cell count claim within 90 days prior to the total knee. And then they're they're really just determining the incidence of pre-albumin transfer and vitamin D, those other laboratories I already mentioned, zinc uh, claimed within the 90 days prior. And um, they're looking at the year of surgery, accounting for patient demographics and clinical characteristics. It's pretty, as far as like the statistical comparisons go, you know, pretty simple, fair here. They're just looking for associations based on the year of surgery, and it's just chi-square testing. They're they're not doing extensive, you know, adjusted analyses. Overall, the annual rates of laboratory testing, they say marginally increased. So rates of prealbumin and transferrin showed the greatest uh, increase, but they increased 316% and 264%. So I, I wouldn't call that modest, really. First off, how much you increase is also informed by where you started from. So if these were very low to begin with and they increase you know, a moderate degree, and I guess that's probably where they're going because the absolute changes were comparably small for prealbumin transfer. And um, that's that's where I think they're really, you know, putting the emphasis. So the first thing that, you know, with this study from my standpoint is, is the premise. I think that it's an interesting discussion to have 
particularly in this context, because much of the much of the data that comes out about the importance of laboratory studies and things like that comes out of data just like this, database studies. And I think there is a certain segment of our population, specifically orthopedics, who has a healthy skepticism of database studies. And then keep in mind, you know, let's just say a lot of this data comes from Pearl Diver or other study sets just like it. The studies that are being used to show the uh, uh, the associations with these laboratory values and the outcomes are the same data elements and data points that they're then using to study how often these are being ordered, right? So people order what they think is actually going to change their practice. And if they don't think it's going to change their practice, it doesn't matter if the AAOS tells you to do it. Like <laughs> That's basically what it, what it comes down to. So, you know, first off, the premise makes this like it's it's um, dosing ANSEF before the incision, right? And and the, the recommendations for ordering laboratory values are certainly not on that level of like, you know, a, as close to entrenched dogma, you know, antibiotic prophylaxis, like has been shown in randomized controlled studies, level one evidence these studies are all going to be like level three and level four studies. So if you're, if you're into that and you, you know, feel like it's important in your practice, in your hands and your patient care, you order it. If you don't feel it's necessary, if you look at somebody and you say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that they're healthy and they're going to do just fine in my hands, you're probably not going to order it. Right. Like there's, there's an, an indication to order these when you need to know, it, it's not one of these things that you're going to order it for everybody. So I think the premise is a little bit is, rests on shaky ground. And then they just did a year-over-year year evaluation. They find that they're not ordered too much. And okay, they're not ordered that much. And, and that's the thing. It's like, what does it mean, right? So you know, you order all these labs and let's say you ordered them and you don't do anything with them. Well, then you would get a checkbox by saying, oh, good, you follow the guidelines of the American Association, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. But does that mean you actually are making a difference, as you said, in your patient's life? But I mean, are these, these are not CPGs, right? Like, not in these cases. For, for total, for total joint replacement. They're not, they're, they're, we don't order these values routinely on every single spine surgery case. Well, so it's interesting because um, they do have the idea, has, like they actually studied here, um, that the 2019 AOS clinical practice guidelines said that malnutrition had limited strength evidence of association, but they didn't include it in the 2022 AOS practice guidelines. I think the biggest, hardest thing for me personally in this study is the fact that they didn't include albumin. And I know they couldn't because of database design issues. But that's almost all what we use as our metric for malnutrition. You know, so for my personal patients, I actually do get um, albumin on all of them, and I would need a level of three point five or above um, before right. undergoing surgery. That's um, the cutoff. That that's the cutoff. And in this database study, it it didn't show it didn't look at albumin, and so that that is a big red flag to me because pre-albumin is something that I think that our plastic colleagues, plastic surgery colleagues use a lot. And that's useful in their context, but we don't use it frequently. And all the other variables are micronutrients, right? That zinc, for example, right? Like, are we checking, are we canceling surgery based on a zinc level? And the answer is no, we're not canceling it based on a zinc level. So don't give anesthesia another reason to cancel. <laughs> Trust me, they will. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, oh, we just read this and the zinc levels. Uh, you don't have a zinc level, but they can't. can't Got to work on your zinc level. But, but I mean, that's a great point. I mean, we do albumin routinely in spinal metastases cases and in cases where it's been shown in epidural abscess and patients where, where there's the frailty aspect is already there for your 25 year old patient who has a large disc herniation and they're going to get a microendoscopic decompression. You're not getting albumin. <laughs> Yeah, they just don't need it, you know, and I mean, we get as part of our uh, comprehensive metabolic panel, right? So it comes with it, which is nice. What's not surprising, though, is because it normally comes with protein as well, too, right? You bring them together. And so, you know, it'd be interesting if they included the incidence, they can get albumin, then at least protein, for example. So I think there's some variables that they missed in this study that are probably more practical in everyday um, treatment of our patients or evaluation mm-hmm. of our patients, I would say. All right. All right. The next one is for me. It's looking at a pilot observational study evaluating the diagnostic capacity of rotational thromboelastometry in periprosthetic joint infections, obviously a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It's by Santes et al. And there is a commentary on this. So we are still looking for the holy grail of diagnosing periprosthetic joint infection. We haven't found it yet, but there are more and more studies coming out saying that there's different variables that can be associated with an increased risk of periprosthetic joint infection. And one of them that came out with Dr. Parvizi and his group was D-dimer, and a group in China looked at fibrinogen as different ones. So this group looked at ROTEM, which is rotational thromboelastometry. It's a type of viscoelastic study on whole blood that evaluates all phases of the coagulation mechanism independently. And it's useful for detecting coagulation abnormalities such as VTE. This is looking um, at an association of periprostatic joint infection with altered hemodynamic, sorry, hemostatic dynamics. And it may be more accurate than markers such as D-dimer. So the purposes of this study were to compare the accuracy of ROTEM between septic and aseptic patients, and they specifically looked at aseptic loosening patients, and compare the accuracy of ROTEM for PJ with other known markers, including CRP and D-dimer. And they looked between October 2021 to October to March 2023, and they excluded patients who had insufficient data, they already had coagulopathies, or infections in other organs. They also excluded patients who were receiving antibiotics, which I found surprising because I would think that in this context that the cell, the, the, the inflammatory reaction, even on antibiotics, should actually be useful, especially since these patients were not septic. So it'd be actually interesting to see that. And if they did not meet the selective criteria in the PJI definition. Now, the study was small. There's only 65 patients who underwent revision for um, surgery. So in the PJI cohort, was 30 patients. There were only 16 acute PGI and 14 chronic PGI. And the aseptic loosening cohort was 35 patients. These were unmatched patients, but they did have similar gender, age, and smoking. The BMI and PGI patients were actually were different. Um, they did have a similar use of chronic anticoagulants. So a, logist, a multivariable logistic regression analysis was performed. And they try to control for the differences in population. They looked at gender, age, smoking status, BMI, Charleston comorbidity index, and chronic anticoagulation and coagulants as independent variables. And they did do subgroup analyses of patients with PJI based on the timing of infection, which is chronic versus acute, or the type of pathogen. And they compared gram positive with gram negative and low virulence versus high virulence. They looked at, they looked at laboratory tests and they looked at pretty... Standard ones, such as inflammatory markers of CRP and ESR, 
They included ones that we don't typically get for all patients unless they're on anticoagulants, such as um, prothrombin time, activated partial thromboplastin time, and D-dimer. And then they did this Rotem analysis. And this was taken one day prior to surgery. And again, these patients were not septic. And they found that patients with PJI, not surprisingly, had higher levels of D-dimer, which has been shown in other studies, and fibrinogen. PJI was associated with higher, we call it XTEM, maximum clot firmness, which is known as MCF, and a higher INTEM MCF, and a higher median XTEM lysis index at 60 minutes. What does that mean? These higher medium, sorry, this higher, this higher maximum clot firmness indicates increased thrombin generation and enhanced clot strength in patients with PJI compared with patients with aseptic loosening. And the higher what we call the XTEM lysis index at 60 minutes findings indicate down-regulated fibrinolysis. There were no differences in gram-positive bacteria or gram-negative bacteria, and there's no difference between low versus high virulence pathogens. Among the ROTEM parameters, this XTEM MCF was the highest diagnostic accuracy for PGI with an area under the curve of 0.850, with one being the best and zero being the worst. And pretty good specificity at 91.4 and okay sensitivity at 76.7%. And their cutoff level was 75 millimeters. It was comparable to ESR and CRP, which we already have in our compendium, but it was better than D-dimer and fibrinogen. And the key take-home message here, I would say, which is true for a lot of diagnostic tests, that if you combined this elevated XTEM MCF and CRP, it was better than CRP alone. So the idea is that this rotational thromboelastometry analysis can be helpful for detection of hemostatic derangements that are associated with PJI, but the key factor is to not use it alone and use it as an adjunct with others. So this might be something that we could use over time, the biggest problem for me is, is it available to all institutions and all organizations, or just something that's a little more exclusive and harder to obtain? So adding it as part of criteria would be difficult, but having it as an adjunct for analysis and, and for diagnosis could be beneficial. From a statistical standpoint, generally, the more variables you're able to include, the more, the more information that you have about something the better your prognose your your predictive capacity is going to be i think the the question here is one of of pragmatism when when we have esr and crp it seems like almost everything outperforms d dimer right like d dimer is like the for for whatever infection vted it's always like the worst performer so the fact that you know it does better than d dimer I, I i i think it's interesting that you know it's one of these these uh, scenarios where they have this thing that they want to to push. Um, we've talked about this before. Um, you know, they're like, "Have you ever heard about rotational thromboelastometry?" There, I said it, and uh, it sounds like another procedure. <laughs> like we have to do a throm- rotational thromboelastometry. Well, how many hours uh, are you under anesthesia for that? And it's like, well. You know, if you include it with CRP or if you include it with this other test, it does better than the other test alone. Isn't that great? No, I don't I don't think it is because it's like we already can just do this ESR and CRP. And if it's even comparable and there's not like, you know, a whole new paradigm opening up a, a, a an order of magnitude difference in terms of like the, the detection rate, then it's just it's just another 
test that, you know, what is the cost profile associated with this? Like you start to ask all those questions. So, yeah, I mean, certainly an interesting study and it's always nice to, you know, have some novel things, but I don't, I don't see this really supplanting what's, what's tried and true and entrenched in so many clinical practices, because if there is a difference, it's, it's incredibly marginal. Completely agree. It's one of those things that's not going to move our needle a lot. So the good news is we have ESR and CRP and it's still doing pretty well. So congratulations. Not broken, right? (laughs) Broken. And now onto your cases on whole featurette, considering mobility status and home environment and readmission risk after total knee arthroplasty by Johnson et al. There's an infographic and a visual summary as well. So more and more patients, as we know, are being discharged to home after total knee arthroplasty. But most of the times when people are looking at reasons for readmission, they look at this typical you know, patient demographics such as age, sex, race, comorbidities, and even surgical complications as reasons for being readmitted after total knee replacements. Well, this study differentiates itself by examining readmission risk at 30 days and 90 days if discharged to a skilled nursing facility versus home with home health care while controlling for the typical patient demographic characteristics and comorbidities and complications, but also including non-traditional variables such as functional status, level of caregiver assistance in home, and social determinants of health. This is an, a single system academic center with 11 hospitals, and it was looking between January 2017 and August 2022. And they only included, remember, those SNF patients and those who were discharged to home with home health care. I would have loved to seen evaluation, including inpatient rehab facilities and home without additional healthcare services, although these populations might be smaller in their cohort of patients. The covariates they looked for were age, gender, primary payer, primary diagnosis, Charleston comorbidity index, area deprivation index, availability of in-home caregivers for the patient based on 24 hours, occasionally or never, and this is from PT notes prior to discharge, and the last recorded score on this activity measure for post-acute care, a six clicks, which is basically a mobility short form. So there are over 16, almost 17,000 patients included in the study. Of this, an overwhelming majority were discharged to home with home health care, which was over 15,000 patients. The remaining 1,700 were discharged to a SNF. And not surprisingly, the SNF patients tend to be older, less independent, female, had Medicare insurance, living in areas with greater deprivation, and had less assistance available from at-home caregivers. At 30 days, the readmission was 7.1% in the SNF group versus only 2.4% in the home with home health care group, more than twice the amount. And at 90 days, very similarly, it was 12.1% in the SNF group versus 4.8% in the home health care group. Then they adjusted it with all those variables, and they found that the difference was really in 90-day readmission um, at 1.45. So discharge to a SNF compared to home health care was independently associated with 90-day readmission, but not on 30-day readmission when controlling for the typical variables such as you know BMI, age, gender, um, but adding things like available caregiver support, mobility status, um, home area deprivation index, primary payer, and primary diagnosis. So the idea is that care teams, in theory, can take this information, say how to reduce the risk of 90-day readmission in our patient population and comparing SNF versus home health care. Can we focus on things like at-home caregiver support or mobility? It's very hard to change the area deprivation index 
that's not a modifiable risk factor, but maybe the other factors we can affect to try to reduce the risk of readmission based on these more social factors as opposed to hard demographic variables. What, what I would ask is how many of these variables that they are considering are also directly associated with the decision that the patient needs skilled nursing versus home home health. Again, it's a database study, and really what it comes down to is the quest, the fundamental question is the extent to which they are able to unpack and address residual confounding around the decision for who's going. If the patients who are going to skilled nursing are all at higher risk of readmission to begin with for all of these reasons, and that's part of the reason why they're going to skilled nursing versus home health. Again, if you just said arbitrarily policy decision, magic wand time, everyone is just going to go home with home health care services. Are you going to eliminate readmissions? No. Are you going to even get that that those 1700 individuals it's such a you know I, I think one thing that stands out and people should recognize when you see that like the overwhelming majority of the population goes in one direction and then there's this small group that's going the other way there's a reason that it's just a small group going the other way it's a select population and ideally what you do is you 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 get rid of all the people in the larger population that have that you know would never have been indicated for for the sniff and you just leave it with those people who could have gone either way that's really what causal inference testing is about they they did a poisson regression they're adjusting for potential confounders the extent to which they're really able to adjust away the selection indi- the confounding by indication it's not it's not you can't really know that like i can't know that i just it's suspicious to me and I, I just use it with the, the the eye test or the theoretical test of, all right, well, if we had a policy decision and we just made everyone go home with health care services, you know, do I think that that's even like a plausible reality? Like the people that I see who are going to skilled nursing, right? They're going to skilled nursing because they, there's no way that they could go home with like home. Exactly. There's a reason that, they're going there. Right. And that's also part of the reason that they're coming back. So, you know, I think that that's, I don't think anyone really wants skill, or maybe I shouldn't say nothing is never, nothing is always. There's a population that probably, you know, wants to go to skilled nursing or their family wants them to go because they really need it. Right. But most people, if they had their choice, would prefer to go home, right? Absolutely. Makes sense. I'd want to go home too. All right. Finishing out with honorable mentions, increased neighborhood deprivation is associated with prolonged hospital stays after surgical fixation of traumatic pelvic ring injuries by Patel. Patients with traumatic pelvic ring injuries face greater social determinants of health, had longer hospital stays, and were less likely to be discharged to resource-intensive facilities when compared with patients of lesser social deprivation. This may be due to socioeconomic barriers that limit access to such facilities. The next is loading of the hip and knee during swimming, an in vivo load study by Zoe et al. This is free for 30 days. And it showed that swimming is a safe and low impact activity, particularly recommended for patients who undergo total hip or total knee replacement. Higher hip and knee joint loads are found in the crawl kick than the breaststroke kick because of different leg movements and joint mechanics. And specifically for total hip replacement patients, there's a smaller range of motion for the crawl kick versus the breaststroke kick. So patients can adopt certain swimming techniques for patients postoperatively based on these findings. And finally, the role- I just want to jump in. I just want to jump in here real quick and say that Josh Jacobs on the board of trustees and uh, 
uh, at, you know, at Rush of eminent fame told me that this was his favorite article that we published all year in JBJS. There you go. Boom. <laughs> so definitely read this. And then finally, the role of the paraspinal muscles in the sagittal imbalance cascade, the effects of their endurance and their morphology on sagittal spinal pelvic alignment by Han et al., also permanently free. It showed that paraspinal muscle degeneration is not only an initiating factor in pelvic retroversion, but also a risk factor for progression from a compensated to a decompensated state. Specifically, the impairment of muscle endurance in the compensated sagittal balance stage may be the reason why patients experience failure of pelvic compensation. Thanks all for joining. And as always, great to have you on board. Until next time.